everybody. It is I, as always, Ryan, uh, host of DM Told Me To and creator of the Oromon Project. Um, so, first things first, if this goes up today and the day I'm recording this, and hopefully it does, happy Father's Day for all of you dads out there, and or if you have an important father figure in your life that is close to you and that you love a lot, like a father would, um, then be sure to wish them happy Father's Day, give them a call, talk with them, let them know that you do appreciate everything that they've done for you because people give up a lot of stuff in life and and life is too short, especially if you're giving up time to do other things. So um, with that being said, again, like I said, uh, have a great Father's Day for all of you guys out there. Okay, starting up with the project here, diving into it. So episode 10, <laughs> a lot of updates um, have happened um, in the past week. And even though it doesn't feel like I did a lot in the book, literally any time I get outside of my job when I'm not working 12 hours a day at the job is doing this. So hopefully you guys appreciate it up till here and so forth and i'm going to continue doing this and hopefully it goes good so um i always like to jump to the log so i can show kind of hey what we're going to talk about in this week's this week's segment here right so uh 6 20 22 21 uh, got a new paragraph of maximum spell card usage i'll go into um i added a from the wild oromon um section um Oh yeah, from, from the wild Oromon CR change. So I, I've gone through and after analyzing, like I said, this book's gonna go through changes, right? Um, going through and looking at the, the tiers of creatures, I do feel that creatures at CR 4 are a lot stronger power level than 3 and onwards. So originally, right, I had to be players in the first tier of the game, player, players playing at levels 1 through 4 of their characters, um, had access to originally creatures from CR0 up to CR4. And I do think CR4 is where you start to get things like Banshee, and you start to get things that that really just are very strong compared to things lower than them in their tiers. And we'll probably go into those in the next episode, hopefully. Because I have creatures from CR3 to talk about, and I started doing CR4, and I was like, hmm. I, I think this is a good, a good cutoff point, and have CR4 be unlocked once players reach player level 5. Because then I think it's fair. But DMs, I mean, can throw these at their creatures, can throw these at their players to make them be stronger. And I feel like it's a good pinnacle point, right? Because you could have players that are like level 3 exploring around with creatures, and you could throw at them a CR4 creature, especially if it's like a 4v1 fight, depending on which rarity the creature falls into. But that'll help determine, right, um, to not let players get super strong things super early. And I think CR4 is me that could cut off. I'm getting to that in a second. Um... I did a paragraph on what happens when a battle, like ending a battle, and then a new ruling on Oromon after battle effects. And um, let me change the new ruling to um, new paragraph, or just um, after battle effects paragraph, because I added a, because um, I never talked about this last week, and thank you for all those that responded back. I really do appreciate that. That is very helpful. Um, like I said, I value feedback. When I play this game, stuff's going to get adjusted. So I figured I'll add a paragraph talking about um, what is what is going on in the book here and um i want to add one more thing that is just working on an oromon log um yeah i'll add that there and we'll go into that at the very end there so i'll start at the top going through um so i had an after battle effects paragraph and more stuff will be added to the battle section i'm sure as things go on uh, i have a mechanic i've been working on behind the scenes well not behind the scenes you guys have been if you guys came to um whenever you're if, if you're in the discord or a little bit on instagram you'll see i'll announce when i go live on twitch so that people can come by talk and there's a new mechanic called Oromorph I want to kind of get into. Um, but I want to wait till I finalize more details of that before I add that in a section of the book. It might be the next week, might be a couple weeks after. We'll see. Um, 
I added a new custom Armand called Starcross Lovers. That'll be cool to see when that gets released. If you're on the Discord, you saw some pictures of them. Um, and they are working on getting their line art done and finalized. So that should be awesome. Uh, I've gotten a lot more art for other creatures too. So we'll go into a little bit of new creature art that's in the that's in the book now. And um, to wrap it all up after all of that, uh, we'll get CR3 and then the Armand log I'll show at the very end here. So that's a quick little thing I'll show at the end and that should be good. Okay, scroll up to the top and we'll get into this here. Okay. So first things first is the set deck size and spell card maximum. I can't remember if I talked about this last week. I don't have it in my notes that I did. So I think that was one of the first things I changed after recording the last episode. So I just wanted to explain what the set deck size and spell card maximum means. Right. Because I realized I went through all this. And I never really kind of said what that was. So very first page of the book, book page two, right? Creating an arm answer right here on the first page. So I was explaining what set deck size and spell card maximum is here. So. For example, right, if your first level, your set deck size is 10, your spell card maximum is 2. So what does that mean, right? So this is the set amount of cards you have in your deck. For instance, level 5 Aromancers must have a deck size of 12 cards total, with 3 cards in it being spell cards. You can only cast your spell card maximum outside of battle and tune your long rest to regain those 3 spell card usages outside of battle again. I was trying to think of a way to word that. Hopefully that's not too confusing. Let's see. You can only cast your spell card maximum outside of battle until you need a long rest to regain those three spell card usages outside of battle again. I'm also after two. This does not affect the cards in your deck. But simply states how many spells you can use outside of battle until needing a long rest until needing a long rest did that still fit all there okay perfect it did cool basically what that is is right um players in dnd can use spells inside and outside of battle right so i just wanted to basically state um your spoken maximum so for example level five because i know in the description i use level five so this amount of cards you must have in your deck. For instance, level 5 Aromancers must have a deck size of 12. 12 cards total with 3 cards in it being spell cards. You can only cast your spell card maximum outside of battle until you need a long rest to regain those 3 spell card usages outside of battle again. This does not affect the cards in your deck, but simply states how many spells you can use outside of battle until needing a long rest. Alright, so in your deck, you can have 2 spell cards that you can always use for combats and things. That's not hurt at all. The amount of times you can use them outside of combat is that spell card maximum, right? But in order to cast a spell outside of combat, it needs to be in your deck. I'll say that as well at the last part here. In order to cast a spell outside of combat, it must be a card in your deck. I think that's, that, that's a good wrapping up sentence there yeah in order to cast a spell outside of combat it must be a card in your deck that way just to clarify what it is what that means right because then people at least know okay for me to cast a spell it's gotta be in my deck okay so enhanced backgrounds all that's the same okay so we talk about the set deck size book of maximum now from the wild arm on cr change i'll just show that quick let me see if i get that down here we throw the class paths. Okay. So from the wild, simply I, I opt it from 
first level play, right? So first level play, your Oromon you can get and have access to are from levels CR 0 to 3. That is a lot of creatures, people, so that is fine. Um, and then I just upped it, so now it's 0 to 3. Instead of being 0 to 4 and 5 to 10, it's now 0 to 3 and 4 to 10. So that 4 to 10 is the next benchmark, and who knows? If 10 or, or maybe even 8 are super strong compared to everything else, in that tier, in that like range of, of creatures, then I might up that. I don't know. But for now, since I've only gone through the first creatures in the book of zero to three, which that's where the most amount of creatures are, is usually in the first part of the book here. That's where the, the divide is. So, yeah. Um, there's the change there. Um, okay, so we got into battles here. Um, any of battles. So the battle ends for an Oromancer when a player's Oro disc runs out of Oro through losing two Oromon in battle. Bosses can break the only losing two Oromon rule under DM discretion. Lose an Oromon and must run out of health and be knocked out in battle and sent to the graveyard. If an enemy releases an Oromon, players will gain half the XP instead of full. If a card was sent to Purgatory, it must immediately be replaced with another card from your binder. If your key card is in Purgatory, you must replace the card, but you will not get a new key card until you visit a guild hall or complete a long rest to get it back from Purgatory. You will not, um, say get the new key card back until you visit a guild hall or complete a long rest to get it back from Purgatory. Until you visit a guild hall, um, parentheses, or a place with an elite Oromancer, right? Because that's basically what you're doing at a guild hall. You're with somebody that's an elite Oromancer. Because we talked about being an elite Oromancer as one of the tiers here is being an elite Oromancer. And then those people are able to switch out your deck and things like that. Um, let's see, where was it? It was before each, it was before each, of, the, each of the tiers. Uh, Master of the Aura, right? Uh, with the city Master of the Aura, you, uh, basically a mythical single creature attacks cannot be summoned unless you, um, okay, so for key cards, right? While at Guild Hall are a safe place to long rest with an elite Oromancer. So, basically that, that's how that you switch out your key card and things, so. Yep. So, for clarity's sake, then I probably should change the tier of, um, Master, well, I'm Master of the Aura, but I, should make one of the tiers here be Elite Oromancer, right? So the players know, okay, I can then switch out stuff on my own. I think I, I think I called it something else, and I'll go into that after the episode, so that we're not wasting time here. Um, okay, I got a lot I gotta go into here. So, um, that was the ending of a battle. Let's go into Oromancer after battle. So, after battle is complete, Oromon will regain all of their health, and unless a condition affects an Oromon for longer than 24 hours, it is cured of that condition. In addition, they regain all spell slots until they are once, um, they, in addition, they regain all spell slots unless they are once per day abilities and spells, in which case they have to wait until the next day to regain them. Once per day abilities, um, I'm going to say once per day abilities, or once per day spells, just to clarify things, in which case they'll have to wait until the next day to regain them. Obviously, I just want to make sure that this is pretty clear, right? So. For example, Dryad can only cast once per day spells, so she'll have to wait till the next day to regain those. But if any creature that you're summoning has spell slots, it'll be able to use it. It's basically like your creature is fully healed after every fight. And this way it avoids, and, and 
voids the use of you needing to go to a Pokemon Center, right? If you were to do Pokemon D and D, for example, or players always had, had players always had to worry about going to a Pokemon Center. And as a DM, you're like, okay, I have to worry now about them always having to go heal things, and that is something not the case with this game, right? If something gets knocked out, if it gets runs out of life points, it pull back health right after the fight, and it can be resummoned, which is nice, right? And that and that way, it avoids the use of needing to do that. Which it adds, it gets rid of a little bit of the fear, but even the player is still always affected by things. So, something to, to look out for. So, okay. Next on my list is, right, after battle, any battle, and Starcross Lovers. I just want to show that off quick. So, we're going to go through all the spells we finished. And I talked about last time how I removed a bunch of spells with the names. Okay. So, Ormon card rarities. First tier, player levels 1 through 4, and CR 0 through... I'm going to fix that right now. As I go through, I find more stuff I have to fix, which is which is fine. Um, showing that off there. Okay. So, so I'm a homebrew creatures, right? CR0 is Epic Shark Egg. CR18 is um, Dragon Egg. And CR14 has a good rarity. It had a good variety of creatures, so I figured I won't add any homebrew to that unless I really need. Um, same thing for Half. Half looked pretty good. I figured I had a legendary into the CR1 called the Starcross Lovers. If you're on the Discord, you've seen the, the image there. Um, I could show show the rough sketch of it for now because it it hasn't been um like I said hasn't been fully colored hasn't been fully shown but I'll show off show off the art that I have of it right now so that'll hopefully be pretty good once that finishes there um that's gonna have two evolutions and that's a fun thing where where I originally had it be the evolution of the commoner and then I was like no nah, I just like this so much I'm just gonna have it be its own its own entity its own creature here so. I can get that there. And that was a while back when I, I've been finding so much stuff the past weeks, guys, of stuff I can use and from artists reaching out saying, hey, um, you want, do you want to put this in your book? I was like, uh, yeah, I would love to. So let's see if I can get that here. So here is the original picture for the Starcross Lovers there. So uh, I'm just showing this off here. So there are going to be a mechanic where they will start as, um, basically what it is, is you summon the creature card, and this is what the card art's going to look like, basically, for the, for the first form. Um, and what happens is you roll a die, and it's your choice of a play what die you want to roll. Evens, you summon one, odds, you summon the other one, and once that one gets knocked out in a combat, then the other one comes out. So either if it's, um, say both their names there, if it's Roland, or if it's uh, Joyce there, then that will determine what one of the two you will summon in a combat. So I think that's pretty cool. Uh, basically what these guys' lore is going to be is um, their two souls met one day in passing and when a princess visited a small town and locked eyes with a farmer boy, they gave each other an item to remember the other before they had to say goodbye, not knowing if they would ever meet again. So <laughs> what's pretty cool about this is like the idea of like, if one gets knocked out, then the other one comes out. So basically what this card is, and this is a new mechanic, right? This is two creatures in this one card. So, you have to knock both of them out to fully get rid of the card. And that's why it and its legendary card, and that's why it's legendary, because it breaks that rule for CR1, and then its evolutions are just going to be even more crazier. Um, plan to, not to spoil too much about them, but their evolutions... Um, their second form will have you summon both of them, and they both will fight for you at the same time. So you will basically be able to give out two actions a turn. You'll be able to give, as your action, you can command each of them to do one thing on their on their stat blocks. So it's a very interesting creature mechanic and card, and that's why I kind of like that. It's like, hey, there's one card summons two. 
Um, and they'll have a mechanic too where if one of them gets knocked out and the other one is still pretty healthy, that one can give up part of their health to bring the other one back. So it's going to be a crazy mechanic. Like um, basically what it is, you have to knock them both out in the same cycle of turn. And, and it's a great enemy for DMs to use against their players. Or if a player gets lucky enough to get a card from them, then they can have that fun experience. I'm needing them both to be knocked out in one turn cycle to have them be removed. If that mechanic gets way too strong, they might just have their mechanics reworked. But I like the idea of having a, of a creature of that or like two lovers that are like in love with each other. And so basically what it is, is it's the inverse of like a Romeo and Juliet situation, right? In the Romeo and Juliet situation, um, they are ultimately characters that right are people where they have fallen in love and they end up taking their own life because they think the other one lost their life. But in this mechanic, it's going to be simply that if they get knocked down, um, they will be able to bring the other one back. So I think that's a, a unique twist on the uh, mechanic there. Let me see if I can get the... Oh, I'm not able... Okay, I was just checking my, my list of things quick, just so I can confirm. Like, so my Perry Myers just finally got back to me on it. So, and it's been it's been some time since, but it's all been good. I understand things get busy with people, and I've been busy myself, so... um. Yeah, Jocelyn and Roland are definitely their names. So right now I'll show you this art. Um, if you remember in the Discord or whatever, you, you'll see probably more of their art and their evolutions together. I think it's, I think it's really cool. So I'm excited a lot for it, and I cannot wait to get them in color because, oh, it's going to be so nice. So a little tidbit of that there. And I'm getting art of the basic creatures as well, and we'll get into that quickly here too. And then we'll go back up to CR3 just because I want to show off some of the art quick because we're talking about art. So, um, okay. First, and again, you know, I like to ask you guys for questions and opinions on things. So uh, a question and opinions coming up here. I have the full almanac of every creature that's in this for CR0 and their evolutions, which you can see here. Or if you're listening, you're listening, which is totally cool. My question is, should I have it be broken as here is the creatures for CR0, here is their stat blocks, and then here's the creatures for CR1 8th, and here is their stat blocks. Or do I make it be, here is the list of all of the creatures in the game, and then here is all of their pictures in the game. Is that better? Or is it better that, okay, zero, here's the stats to go with zero. One-eighth, here's the stats to go with one-eighth. I kind of like that idea, but I like the uh, feedback from players on what they think, or listeners too, and what you guys think. Um, so anyway, I got some updated art from Thorn, for Thornmonger here. So I, I recently went into an artist called Carl. Uh, I'm hopefully I'm pronouncing right. I don't know if I'm pronouncing Carl. Carol. Carl. Um, he's this really cool dude. I've been talking to from Ukraine, who has reached out to draw for the project, and I'm super excited. So I now have my own picture of Thormonger I can use. So what I'm going to try to do is, I want to avoid <laughs> um, using any Wizards of the Coast images at, if at all, right? Because if I want to market this as my own thing, I ultimately need to make sure that it is something where I own it, it is my stuff, and I'm simply using the idea of D&D as a shell around it, which is, I think, fine by uh, the open game license of Wizards of the Coast terms. So, for example, this was our old picture of Thornmonger here. Let's see him there. And um, so I was excited because this is like, oh, I'm like, this is perfect. This is exactly what I wanted. Well, um, after we an open game license and thinking of stuff, I don't, I don't want to use Dungeons & Dragons art if I can help, right? Because ultimately, if I plan to make cards for you guys to be able to buy someday, if you like to buy the cards, and the book, like I said, should hopefully still be paid what you want by the time it releases, and then if you guys like it enough, go back, donate, whatever, because obviously this is not cheap to do. Um, 
But that way, for me to be able to sell actual playing cards of these creatures and just using the stats of D&D, that is still fine. I'm pretty sure we don't begin license because people sell their own creatures all the time in pamphlets and books on D&D Beyond and other online social forums using the ideas and mechanics behind Dungeons & Dragons. So I've removed creatures that Dungeons & Dragons have a copyright license to. Beholder, Mind Flayer, to name two frequent, um, popular, I should say, names of things. So simply, if I'm going to make a creature, I will have its art here. I have to get art of now all the basic creatures, art of their evolutions, and then art of all the spells, because I want the spells to be cards too for people to use. This is not a cheap project, so like I said, if you are... If you get a few dollars every month and you're like, hey, I have three extra dollars or whatever, I'll just donate one dollar to the paycheck of the on the Patreon. That will go so far. Believe me. And I'm going to keep a tally up above if you see the next Armand purchase. So even if people come in on the Patreon, I'll update up there as well so people can see where we're at. for the... And now you guys can see that all of your support has gone to doing an art purchase of specifically art for this project. Um, So that's up there. If you're watching, you can check that out, see where we're at. Otherwise, the Patreon links are always down below in the descriptions for things, whether if you're on YouTube, listening on Podbean, listening on Spotify, iTunes, uh, Stitcher, CastBox, wherever you guys are. I see you guys. Amazon Audible. I noticed that recently as being a cool thing that people have been listening to on. Anyway, here's a picture of Thormonger. I'm excited for it, so I might have this be on the cover art too, but I mean, look at this guy. This is a Thormonger, even I think better. And I said, and I would send the, um, I'd send Carl this picture for reference. And then, and then tell my why. And he was able to adapt this so much into this picture. And I love it. Because, like, look at this creature, man. So it has the thorn skin. It has its spike vine ability. It has the rake. Like, look at those hands. It's so cool. And um, now I should have almost enough card art to get a full sheet of cards ready to send them my guy to print. So I can actually, instead of holding these paper cards, have a full nine nice printed cards i can show you guys eventually in some video of some sort probably on the instagram for those that are on the instagram you guys will probably see that first and i'll share it to the reddit and things like that there's a reddit too for this called oromon that's also down below if you want to check that out and uh update pictures there update pictures on discord i send stuff everywhere <laughs> there's not like one clear way place i send things i try to send them across multiple things if i can but anyway so here's the new update of thormonger i love him look at him He's so cool. Imagine summoning this guy out to fight with you. He's like a Groot. And I have Awakened Shrub that you'll see someday as well. And uh, was it Awakened? My first order that I got from Carl was Awakened Shrub, Thormonger, oh, and Frog. So the basic Frog, because I have the Frog Evolution all down, and I wanted to get the Frog done. So it's coming along pretty good. Okay. <sighs> Enough of that uh, talking. Let's get into some Serif 3 creature stuff, right? Let's get into some of the um, creatures that we know and love in D&D and where they fall. So, and why. I'm going to slip, bam that over there, get CR3 up here. Okay. So, uh, a lot of creatures in CR3 that were kind of iconic, I kind of thought were a little underwhelming compared to some of the other creatures of this tier. So, to show you what I mean, we've all heard of Doppelganger, and, and it's such an a incredible creature for role-playing aspects, right? So, I'll read you Doppelganger here. Uh, doppelganger, AC of 14, hit points of 52, condition it's immune to charm, everything else is just kind of dark vision, past perception, etc. But its abilities, it can use its action to polymorph into a smaller medium humanoid it has seen, or back into its true form. Its statistics, other than its size, are the same in each form. Any equipment it is wearing or carrying is not transformed. Um, it reverts to its true form if it dies. Doppelganger has advantage on attack rolls against any creature it has surprise. Surprise attack. If the doppelganger surprises a creature, hits it with an attack, and hits it with an attack during the first round of combat, 
The target takes an extra 10 damage from the attack. Stop getting waste too many attacks. Um, slam, which gets a plus 6 to hit, which is actually... If you look at its stats up above, somehow it gets a plus 6 to hit, which is surprising, considering it only has a plus 0 to its strength. But yet again, Slam is physically slamming into something, which is pretty interesting. Um, anyway, hits for 7 damage. So on average, it hits for 14 damage. Okay. Or it can magically read the surface thoughts of one creature within 60 feet of it. The effect can penetrate barriers, but 3 feet of wood, dirt, etc. Basically, uh, while targets in range, it can continue reading its thoughts as long as its concentration isn't broken. While reading the target's mind, the doppelganger has advantage on wisdom, thought, um, wisdom or insight and charisma, deception, intimidation, persuasion checks against the target. Basically, for roleplay, this is such a cool creature, right? Because as DMs, you could have, like, I was thinking as an idea for DMs, this is a fun little nugget of, like, something cool to use for your games at home, is you could have, like, per perhaps two twins be oromancers, right? And they're taking, like, the duel scene by storm. They're trouncing players are doing things. And then what happens is one of your players start to fight it, and one of maybe your player's attacks is an AoE Dragon Breath attack that hits the enemy player, right? If that does that, and then all of a sudden they lose their concentration, and the doppelganger can no longer concentrate on that, and all of a sudden reverts back to another thing, and everybody's shocked or something, right? Like, that could be such a cool pinnacle moment in a story to learn. They're not twins. This is one dude, a doppelganger he just befriended out in the wild that's now a duelist. What? And maybe the doppelganger, all of a sudden, now his creatures you see are other doppelgangers that he's been summoning or slimes and oozes that have transformed or were-rats or something. And you realize, okay, this is not a normal dude summoning creatures. This is a doppelganger summoning were-tigers and were-rats to fight for him. What is going on here? And then that one player was fighting him is like taken back, like, what is happening? Uh, it could be a really cool, like, twist on a character, right? So I, I'm also trying to think about characters and how that they can interact with the world around them to make it a better playing experience for the players such as for example creatures with aoe sound effects and then having a deaf character and maybe lost his hearing when he was younger and so he's not affected by his own harpy or um banshee and other things like that that use sound based attacks that deal a lot of damage or just not creatures with zero hit points won't affect them because he can't hear at baseline fun and interactive characters to make the world feel more alive and using creatures to fight with that match those themes oh i think it's so cool Anyway, so for example, right, doppelganger is just a common at this level because really, it deals 14 damage. That's it. Yes, it polymorphs into a creature, which gives it additional hit points, but otherwise it just hits for 14. And if it gets a surprise attack because people don't expect it to, okay, it has an extra 10 damage. So the first turn, yes. On average, that's 34 damage the first turn. Or 24 damage the first turn, I'm sorry. But after that, it's really just 14. With a slam attack that's a bludgeoning of a 1d6 plus 4. And at this point in the game at CR3, we're on like the top, we are at the top tier for the first player character creatures to play with, right? So while this is an amazing roleplay element, alas, it just doesn't hold up to the tier of being that higher level creature. So that's just an example of something that that's like a common, right, in this tier. Or, um, I think Killer Whale, I was on the fence with some of them, but ultimately they weren't, they didn't really hold up the part. So, if I was to show off uh, another one here, like, is Manticore? Yeah, Manticore is here. Okay. Uh, AC of 14, hit points of 68. Like, we're getting into some pretty high health creatures, but CR4 is where things get to, like, 90, and I was like, mm, and have a good AC. So, I was like, mm, I think that's going to be the, the cutoff, because that is just way too much health, for what I think. So, for example, Manta Growth, uh, Manta Core, AC of 14, points of 68. 
Manticore has 24 tail spikes. Use spikes regrow in the Manticore fishes long rest. Make three attacks. One with its bite, two with its claws, or three with its tail spikes. If it does a tail spike, we'll just use that for reference. That's 21 damage. That's it. Uh, no poison, no paralysis, no, like, toxic spikes. But that leaves room for me to make an evolution of the Manticore that could dip into those elements. Be pretty cool, right? So, maybe make, like, a toxic Manticore as its evolution or something. Could be really cool. So, like I said, I got a lot of ideas for things. I just need to get the ball rolling and lay out these creatures, and then I can devote to finishing making all the stat blocks. And then I guess the question is, now that I have CR0, half, all that stuff done, should I start to work on the evolution stat blocks for creatures? I have the art going on behind the scenes, and Carl is an amazing artist who's been getting me the art pretty readily. Like, every four or five days, I submitted, like, four or five drawings I want done, and he has got them done. Like, this morning, I sent him something. What's today? Today is Sunday. I sent him something, I think it was Friday of my request and he got like all four or five of them already done with their rough drawings and filled them with color not finalized with shading or anything but i'm like oh my gosh that's awesome you know so so example of uncommon right comparing common uncommon let's go to the bearded devil because bearded devil okay uh side note bearded devil i was not sure on where i wanted to put things i just realized i don't have basilisk anywhere on this i also work on this while i'm at work and so I sometimes lose the um, ability to do, it doesn't save my progress. So yeah, I want to make Basilisk a legendary because uh, yeah, for reasons I thought it was already, but I don't see it anywhere on my list. And that's quite surprising that I missed it because I've been pretty good. I'm trying to be good about it, but I just noticed it. So I'm glad I caught it. All right. So we'll go into um, and Basilisk, I know, I've used Basilisk in games. So that's why I was like, I know this thing for its tier compared to other things here was a legendary, believe me. All right, Bearded Devil. Talk about Bearded Devil for the uncommon tier here. Uh, AC 13, hit points of 52, pretty decent, speed of 30 feet. It resists cold, bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing from non-magical attacks that aren't silvered. 30 halves the damage from there. Immune to fire and poison, a ghoul's best friend. Um, Devil's Sight, it doesn't impede the Devil's Dark Vision. I'm at, so in addition to having resistances to those, immunity to fire and poison as resist, magic resistance, which gives it advantage on saving throws against spells and other magical effects. So already its resistances are pretty nice. That's why it's already kind of an uncommon. And then its attack uh, makes two attacks. One with its beard and one with its glaive. Its beard is reach uh, plus five to hit. Hits for six piercing on average. Target makes a DC 12 con saving throw or be poisoned for a minute. While poisoned this way, the target cannot regain hit points. Target can repeat the same throw at the end of each of its turn, ending the effect on itself on a success. Well, it just shuts off Celestials. Yep. It's pretty strong. And then what is Glaive? Glaive is interesting, too. That's why it's also an uncommon. And I wasn't sure if it wanted to be an uncommon or rare, but um, uh, Glaive, right? Plus 5 to hit, reaches for 10 feet. Hits one target for 8 slashing damage. If the target is a creature other than an undead or construct, it must succeed on DC 12 saving throw or lose 1d10 hit points at the start of each of its turns due to an infernal wound. Each time the devil hits the wounded target with this attack, the damage dealt by the wound increases by a d10. Any creature can take an action to staunch the wound with a successful DC 12 medicine check. The wound also closes if the target receives magical healing. So, if they're poisoned, they can't regain hit points. So they can't be magically healed. First off, Unless they break the poison effect, obviously. But, and of course, any creature can basically skip its turn or take an action 
to try to make a medicine check with wisdom. And not many creatures like we talked about have a high wisdom. For example, the devil itself has a plus zero to wisdom. So having to make a wisdom check of 12 means you probably need some modifier to be above average there, right? And if you don't do it and you get affected by the glaive a second time, which is a con saving throw to get affected by that. If you get affected by that twice, then at the start of every turn, you're taking 2d10. As the wound is getting deeper and deeper. Don't do it again. I started trying to take 3d10 damage. That just happens. It's not like you have to make a save. You have to, make, you have to spend your action to make a save to stop the effect. Right? Whereas if it's poison, it says the target can repeat the saving throw at the end of each of its turns. No, 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 no. For Glaive, you have to basically use your turn to make a medicine check or have somebody else use their turn to make a medicine check on you to try to close the wound. You see how good that is, right? That's like damage is just happening until you stop it or you get magically healed. But if you're poisoned, then you can't be magically healed until you make the check successfully to break the poison. And you see why this thing is like, okay, this thing has, has weight to it, right? It has resistances, protections, some immunities, interesting abilities. So that's why it's an uncommon. I was a bit of one to make it be a rare, but I think everything else here that's a rare is just better than it, surprisingly. I know that's a lot of stuff. Um... Hellhound is a common guy. I made him an uncommon. I want to see why I did that for a second here, too. Hellhound. AC of 15. Hit points of 45. It's immune to fire. Advantage on wisdom perception checks that rely on here. Oh, that's why. Pack tactics. Yep. <laughs> I remember for the for the creatures um, of CR like 1 8 and 0, where it's like, oh, pack tactics. The way to go. Right now, pack tactics basically makes you be an uncommon <laughs> compared to the other guys, right? So, Hound is advantage on. On an attack roll against a creature, if at least one of the hound's allies is within five feet of the creature and the ally isn't incapacitated. Actions. Fight. Plus five to hit. Reach at five feet. Now hits one target for seven piercing damage plus seven fire damage. So 14 damage in one attack roll compared to a creature that has to hit twice for that 14. One attack roll um, with a plus five. Uh, for 14 is around that same par, right? It just, you, you don't have to risk Benefits and risk, right? You don't have to risk not hitting with that second attack, but that second attack could also be a crit. Anyway, also this fire breath. Fire breath and 15 foot cone. Each creature in the area must make a DC 12 deck saving throw, taking 21 fire damage on a failed save for half as much on a successful one. This thing kind of reminds me of a dragon with his breath attack, right? But its AC is only 15. Kind of reminds me of the dragon, but it can't fly. It's not a, it, it, um, but remember, his attack rolls on against creatures if at least one of the hound's allies within five feet of that. So technically that 14 damage could become 28, depending on if you roll well on that crit. If somebody's next to that other thing fighting it, which DMs, if you throw like five hellhounds at the enemy team of three players, those hounds are all getting advantage and stuff. 15 foot fire cone, man. Pretty strong stuff. So that's why it's also an uncommon, right? Because that compared to this doppelganger who is for 14 damage, and that's really it. With slam, it has good role-playing elements, but not very good combat elements. Kind of why it's, you know, lesser tier. And we'll talk about one last one, just Yeti. I think it's a good one to talk about for uncommons. Indy 5 Yeti here. Okay, uh, AC of 12, hit points of 51. I was about to make this an uncommon. This is like a bottom tier uncommon, I want to say, too. It's immune to cold. Um, Fear of fire, the, the it takes fire damage, it has disadvantage on attack rolls and ability checks. And fire is, is a, I don't want to say a common, but as opposed to all the other magical stuff, fire and poison early game seems pretty prevalent in a lot of creatures. So that kind of hurts him why he's on uncommon. Advantage on stealth checks if he's in the snow. What is attacks? So 
Multi-attack. The Yeti can use its chilling gaze and makes two claw attacks. What is chilling or what is claw attacks with that first? Plus six. Uh, uh, seven slashing plus one d6 cold, basically. Okay, round 10 damage. Two claw attacks. That's about 20 damage of just that. Okay. And it can do a chilling gaze in a turn. Chilling gaze. Targets one creature can see within 30 feet of it. The target can see the Yeti. The target must succeed on a DC 13 con saving throw against the magic or takes 3d6 cold damage and then be paralyzed for one minute unless it's immune to cold damage. Target can beat the saving throw at the end of each of its turns, ending the effect on itself on a success. If the target's saving throw is successful or if the effect ends on it, the target is immune to chilling gaze of all yetis but not abominable yetis for one hour. So... You make the save once, you're immune to the effect um, for one hour. But if you fail, you are paralyzed for one minute. And you can be the save throw at the end of each of its turns. And we talked about how good paralyzes. Paralyzes is an effect where a paralyzed creature is incapacitated and cannot move or speak. The creature automatically fails strength and dexterity saving throws. Attack rolls against the creatures have advantage. Any attack that hits the creature is a critical hit if the attacker is within five feet. So, you fail that once. That's a full cycle of everybody wailing on you, hitting you. And it doesn't say the Yeti has to do claw or chilling gaze first, right? So, it could chilling gaze you first. You could fail. And then, oh, yeah, my claw attacks are crits now because I'm within five feet. Yep. So you see why that's an uncommon, right? Pretty darn good. Um, all right. Going to some of the rares. Uh, blue dragon and gold dragon wormling. The only dragon that's not going to be in the first segment of the game is unfortunately red dragon wormling because I think these level the four creatures here are just so much hit points, so much AC. Right. It, it's a different ball game compared to the other creatures here where it's like Wispia yeah, had nineteen, but nineteen AC. But its attack was semi-weak and its hit points were really weak too. So it was like, you know, it was, it was a great blocker, but damage-wise. Meanwhile, those things there had good AC and have pretty decent HP, close to around 100. So I was like, yeah, I think that's a good cutoff. But to not. So anyway, uh, Green Hag is a rare. Uh, AC of 17. Basically, all these rares and ups are going to have pretty high ACs and really good abilities. So... Green Hag, right? DC is 17. Already pretty good. I'm not going to make that be an uncommon. I'll make it be a rare. Um, and the Green Hag speaks Draconic, which I thought was a really interesting thing to note. Um, hit points of 82. Cast Dancing Lights, Minor Illusion, visit, uh, Vicious Mockery. Uh, the Hag can mimic animals, sounds, and human voices. All that fun stuff. Okay. She can Claw, which is a plus 6 to hit, and deals 13 slashing damage. She also has Illusory Appearance. So, hmm. Yeah, I literally think I just made the hag be a rare because she had 17 AC and 82 HP. She is a lot of defense, right? Considering the thing that had like, oh, 15 AC and 45 health. This thing has 17 AC and 82 hit points. That is a lot of hit points when you talk about first level characters and things, right? So, I mean, as far as attacks, Minor Illusion, Dancing Lights, and Vicious Mockery, I mean... It's just mockery. Just mockery here. It's just mockery says, uh, unleash a string of insults with subtle enhancements at a creature you can see with the range of the target can hear you 
Must succeed on a wisdom saving throw or take 1d4 psychic and have disadvantage on the next attack rolls it makes before the end of its next turn. So being able to impose disadvantage on people is pretty good. Um, I mean, they have to make a wisdom check, right? But like we talked about, wisdom saves aren't the highest things, so pretty good. Otherwise, it hits for about 13 with its slashing. Damage-wise, it's not really there. I'm actually kind of tempted now to move Green Hag despite having 17 AC down. It's just... She doesn't, and, and she doesn't do a lot. She really doesn't compared to some of these other things. You know what we're talking? I'm going to move Green Hag down to an uncommon. It'll be one of the only ones that'll have a high AC, but it doesn't. We talked about this before. It hits, but it's just not, it's just not what it's, a, it's not that good. Really not. And I got to look at this way too, right? I, I did um move some of the dragons down to a rare, I think. Yeah, black green and stuff but I, and i don't think any dragon was an uncommon so i guess green hag will be the highest ac thing that's an uncommon just because her attacks are really lackluster she gets a plus six to hit which is great but she only 2d8 plus four is not 13 slashing damage and then illusionary appearance basically says she can be look like another creature unless somebody makes a check and touches her then she loses it oh oh she also can go invisible if she's concentrating. So she does get surprise attack, which does grant her advantage on her next attack, but she only attacks once. So she gets advantage for 13 damage. It doesn't seem that good. Or at least the hell she I think she's on par with the Hellhound, right? The Hellhound gets advantage for pack tactics. She gets advantage if she's invisible with a surprise attack. Yes, she has high AC, and yes, she has a high hit points. Well, a lot of these things are now going to be resisting damage because it's not a magic attack. It's just claw slashing 13. Which is dealing 13 regular slashing damage to some of these things is just not going to not going to be par. And now the epics are more than the rares. So if there's an epic, I'll have to slide down. Potentially a hobgoblin captain. I might move it down to a rare just to help it equal out the balance here. Let's see. Uh, so the other rares, right? Black dragon or blue and blue and gold, right? Blue is basically the same as the other dragons. AC seventeen, hit points of fifty-two. Um, bite it deals eight, pier eight plus three lightning, and it has a breath attack which deals uh, twenty-three lightning or forty ten, and makes a DC twelve dexterity saving. Uh, uh, regular lightning on a, or half as uh, excuse me, taking twenty-two lightning damage on a failed save or half as much on a success. So the interesting idea with magic attacks, right? And this is a good point to bring up for people that don't know or are just tuning in. And if so, I'll go with this is your first one. Um, unlike melee attacks in D&D, right? Magic attacks have saves. And even if you save, you still take half. So that is some sort of damage reduction. Meanwhile, the attacker has to reach that AC to actually break through to hit you for damage. So. Uh, by not by at least making the save and check, the dragon with the 17 AC is always dealing hit points, right? Where with the hag, she has to beat the enemy AC, and certain things have pretty high AC. She has to beat the AC to even deal the slashing damage. Where this thing at least it does a breath attack and it deals an AOE damage, which is a little more than the um, hellhound because it has 17 AC, which makes it better than the hellhound, right? Um, but otherwise, it's just a rare because it doesn't really do much besides. When it doesn't recharge its lightning breath, it only hits for about 11 damage. That's it. 
That's light, uh, piercing and lightning, so it gets that elemental damage in there too for some creatures that are resistant to it. But uh, yeah, otherwise it's not it's not really there as far as damage, and that's why it's only rare. That is why it is only rare. But ultimately, I think this is better than the hag because it's elemental damage compared to the hag's just regular slashing. Gold, I'm pretty sure it's the same as blue. 17 AC, 60 hit points. Um, the gold had two breath attacks. Uh, bite, which is just piercing. Um, and but it's two breath attacks. Fire breath and weakening breath. Fire breath is just the 22 AoE elemental damage. Check of 13 instead of 12 for decks, but things have pretty decent decks. Um, weakening breath. 15 foot cone. Each creature in the area must succeed on DC 13 strength saving throw or has disadvantage on strength-based attack rolls, strength checks, and strength saving throws for one minute. A creature can repeat the saving throw at the end of each of its turns, ending the effect on itself on a success. So this thing could be pretty interesting when combined with a creature that grapples something, right? Because if the enemy has to make a strength or athletics or some sort of physical check to break out of a grapple, now he breathes on them and now they can't do that because they're weakened, right? So that's why he's also rare. And he's a little better than his blue guy, but ultimately they're around the same because... Okay, many people have disadvantage on uh, strength-based attack rolls or checks, but it really isn't, like, enough to, to... to to have enough... Like, it doesn't deal damage, right? So it's just for one minute, and a creature can beat the same throw at the end of each of its turns, ending the effect on success. So it's not even permanent, right? So... Alright. And the last one being veteran. Uh, AC is 17 with a splint and 58 hit points. Um, I made it a rare because of that, and Veteran makes two long sword attacks. If it has a short sword drawn, it can also make a short sword attack. So let's assume, best case scenario, right? It makes its two long swords and a short sword. So that is seven plus seven, just 14. 14 plus the short sword is an additional six, so that's about 20 damage. You know what? I'm. <laughs> I know I'm moving stuff around. I think I'm gonna move bearded devil to rare because of its continuous wounding effects, and I'm gonna shift some stuff around here. The bearded devil has now become a rare there. Um, and I may move um veteran down now too because it just has an AC of 17. It's like the hag, but the hag at least turns invisible. It gets advantage. This thing doesn't. Like I said. I, I I make stuff is going to shift this stuff's going to get talked around. So the fact that I'm able to talk about this and go over this with you guys is great because I'm able to go through and feel like, okay, what should I move? What needs to happen here? So, yeah. Um, move the veteran down to the uncommon. Yeah. Uh, I want to take a look at that bugbear chief because I'm kind of like, should he move up? <laughs> um, Quagoth thought not is basically just like the other Quagoth we talked about last week, except that it just has a few spells, but it's not. It's not like enough to make a big impact. It's simply just like, Damage. Not even damage, just like utility spells like dancing lights, things things like that. Uh the Yeti now. Kind of paralyzing things that kind of move up to the rare slot. Because it has that paralyzed effect, and then it can claw. Yeah, you know what, Yeti, fine. Come on up here. Come on up to the rare slot, Yeti. We're just gonna shift a whole bunch of things around. The Yeti on up here. Okay. Yeah, so we got the Yeti now in the in the rare. We got the Uncommons there. Okay. Looking good. If I can move one epic down, that'd be nice too. Alright. 
Let's look at the epics here. All right. Uh, epic being a, a hobgoblin captain. So I got to look that guy up because I think he was somebody who had to look up special. Hobgoblin captain. Indy 5e. Okay. So AC is 17, which is pretty good. Um, once per turn, the hobgoblin can deal an extra 10 damage to a 3d6 to a creature it hits with a weapon attack. If that creature within 5 feet of the ally of the hobgoblin that isn't incapacitated. So basically, uh, instead of pack tactics where it gets advantage, it just deals extra damage, which is pretty good from a power standpoint. And it makes two great sword attacks. So if either of them hit and an ally within 5 feet, they deal an extra 10 damage, an extra 3d6. So once per turn, right? So great sword. Attack plus four uh, hits for nine damage. Javelin and it for five damage, but uh, great sword uh, hits twice. So really, nine times two is eighteen. If either of those hit and it allies within five feet, that's actually instead of eighteen damage, twenty-eight damage. And on top of that, it has a leadership ability which says recharges after a short or long rest for one minute. The hobgoblin can utter a special um, command or warning whenever a non Hostile creature that it can see within 30 feet if it makes an attack roll or a saving throw. So whenever a non-hostile creature, so a friend, it can see within 30 feet if it makes an attack roll or saving throw, the creature can add a d4 to its roll provided it can hear and understand the hobgoblin. The creature can benefit from only one leadership die at a time. The effect ends if the hobgoblin is incapacitated. So I said abilities or spells right so technically every fight this hobgoblin for one minute it can utter a special commander warning whenever a non-hostile creature it can see within 30 feet if it makes an attack roll or a saving throw and they can add a d4 to its roll that's so good provided it can hear and understand how that means you can break through acs with attack rolls or you can potentially beat saving throws thanks to this guy that's why he's an epic because he does all that and he helps the team <laughs> it's pretty good and it can deal up to 28 damage to turn at baseline very nice. So that's why he's uh, that's why he's there because of the special uh, leadership speaking that it can just use every fight it needs. Okay, next being the mummy. Talk about the mummy here. Mummy. I mean, if you know anything about mummies, probably not a surprise that it's here. But um, AC of eleven, hit points of fifty-eight. It's vulnerable to fire. Obviously, it's made of paper, but it resists bludgeoning, piercing, slashing for non-magical attacks. It's immune to necrotic and poison. It can't be charmed, exhausted, frightened, paralyzed, poisoned, etc. Okay. Mummy can use its, its actions. It can use its dreadful glare and makes one attack with this rotting fist. Or a rotting fist first. Plus 5 to hit. If it hits, they take 10 or 2d6 bludgeoning, plus 3d6 or 10 necrotic damage. Targets a creature and must succeed on DC 12 con saving throw or be cursed with mummy rot. The cursed target can't regain hit points and its hit point maximum decreases by 10 for every 24 hours that elapse. The curse reduces the target's hit points to zero. The target dies and its body turns to dust. The cure lasts. The curse lasts until removed by the remove curse spell or other magic. So, at the end of a fight, it'll be healed. But the curse target can't regain hit points, and its maximum hit points decrease by ten for every twenty-four hours that elapse. Actually, this goes beyond twenty-four hours, so the creature will not be healed of this. <laughs> if you get hit by a mummy, that's bad. You'll take 10 bludgeoning plus 10 necrotic and that's pretty bad. That's 20 damage at base, which is one attack. And that's not even, it's, and it can keep dealing you 10 after every fight. And it can do dreadful glare. Target one creature can see within 60 feet of it. 
Target can see the mummy and must succeed on DC 11 wisdom saving throw against the magic. Or it becomes frightened until the end of the mummy's next turn. The target fails the saving throw by 5 or more. It's also paralyzed for the same duration. Target that succeeds on the saving throw is immune to dreadful glare of all mummies, but not mummy lords for the next 24 hours. Something to note. Okay, so it remain paralyzed until the end of the mummy's next turn if it fails by five or more in a wisdom. And not many things have wisdom, guys. Or they're basic, or they usually just get a plus zero at a higher level. Not many things have like a plus three or anything to wisdom. So if something fails, that DC 11 check gets like a six or lower. That thing is now paralyzed and gets things that hit it aren't automatic crit. It's really bad considering the mummy can then hit you for. Instead of 10 damage, you're going for about 40 damage. You see why that's so strong? And that's, a, that's an epic, right? You see why this guy is an epic. You see. I was debating on um, moving it up there with um, Knight and Spectator, but it only has an AC of 11. Right, so that's its downside. And it's vulnerable to fire, and there are some fire creatures. So if an enemy, if you know you're going to the Egyptian desert, pack fire creatures in your deck, like... Make sure that those mummies don't get many hits on you. Because if they get a ton of hits on you and you get paralyzed, that's it. Your team could go down pretty easy. So, oh, something to note too in the mummy's notes. It gets a plus two to its wis to wisdom saving throws. So it's probably the first creature I've seen that has, a, has an interesting saving throw buff like that, which was ju just specifically wisdom. Right, so <laughs> it's pretty interesting if a mummy tries to look at another mummy. So, but it targets a creature, so it's not like an AoE look. It's just like targets one creature, so. But that's still pretty dangerous, right? So, all right, water reared and then werewolf. We'll go into that quick. So, and water weird. Okay, this is basically like a water elemental looking creature. Look at my screen. You can see the D and D picture of a water weird. Pretty interesting looking dude. Um, AC of thirteen, hit points of fifty eight, swimming speed of sixty feet. Uh, resists fire, bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing from non magical attacks. It is immune to poison. It cannot be exhausted, grapple, paralyzed, poison, prone, restraint, and conscience, which a lot of things like to do is grapple you, paralyze you, or poison you, or knock you prone. So it's immune to all that. The water weir is invisible while fully immersed in water. Uh, water bound. The water weir dies if it leaves the water, twitches, it's bound to, or if the water is destroyed. So you have a player that can like create and destroy water as an ability of a moveset that the creature has, or if they're packing the spell, well, they're pretty good. What does the water weir do attack-wise? Well... It's a plus 5 to hit. Reach for 10 feet on one creature. Uh, hits for 13 bludgeoning damage. Target is medium or smaller. It is grappled with an escape DC of 13. Hold 5 feet towards the water weird until the grapple and the target is restrained. And the kicker is, the water weird tries to drown it and the water weird cannot constrict another target. So, it is going to try to restrain and uh, drown your creature. So it was restrained. A restrained creature's speed becomes zero and it can't benefit from any bonus to its speed. Attack rolls against the creature have advantage and the creature's attack rolls have disadvantage. The creature has disadvantage on dexterity saving throws. So some strats is right. A player summons a water weird. It grabs somebody and then if a dragon breathes a breath attack, that thing's going to have disadvantage on its dex check to save it and it'll just be affected. Meanwhile, the water weird is just, you know, immune to poison. So if you, so literally a player strat, right? You could have a water weird. And a black dragon that deals poison damage. The water weirds are immune to the poison, but the creature it's holding is now at a disadvantage on the dex check for the breath attack. And we'll probably take that full breath attack. And that's that's a cool combo. And there's so many 
like interesting combo and strats you can see for players or for tag team duelists and things. So, so hyped for this one to get when this. I mean, you guys can start playing this now. Like I said, I have creatures one through three done. So I'm just working on evolutions and things for art and stuff. But you can go ahead. There's just no like official art for the for the cards just yet. But it's a work in progress, and I think it's going well pretty good. All right. Uh, werewolf quickly, right? Um, anything that's aware of something, we know will have the immunity to bludging, piercing, slashing from non-magical attacks, and and not made with silver weapons. So. Immune to bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing from non-magical attacks, not made with silver weapons. So that sea hag cannot touch this thing at all. At all. It's immune. To bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing from non-magical attacks that are not made with silver. Uh, what else does it do? AC of 11 in human or 12 if it's in wolf or hybrid. Uh, for discussion purposes, I like to refer to wolf or, or hybrid form because it can do the most. So you're probably summoning in hybrid form for 12 AC. It's not very high at this level at all, but 58 HP. But being immune to most of the attacks from a lot of the creatures warrants it to be an epic. I think it's the only epic wear creature. I think everything else I made a legendary. Yeah, wear rat, wear tiger, and things. Yeah. Um, what can it do? It makes two attacks. One with its bite, one with its claws. Okay, so we'll look at bite. Bite plus four to hit. Hits for six piercing. Mark is a humanoid, must see in DC 12, or be cursed with werewolf lycan 3, lycanthropy. Um, if, so that's bite. If it's claw, it hits for 7 slashes, so it's really 13 damage. Um, yes, unlike the unlike the, uh, the sea hag, which only, again, deals regular piercing slashing, this thing's immune to most types of creatures in the game. Now, things at this level are having magic attacks. That will affect the werewolf. But ultimately, those magic attacks have kind of recharge or spell slots. You can only do it so many times. Unless a special ability or something that lets it do at a baseline attack. Like the dragons have the bite, which the piercing is half, but the, the ice or the regular elemental damage isn't. Meanwhile, the werewolves here are attacking you for 13. It's really interesting to see if like two werewolves fought, there would be no winner. Because they're immune to each other's own attacks. <laughs> Until a player releases it and summons something else or fuses it with something and or morphs it or morphs it with something and combines it to make an um Make an oraling evolution there. So, anyway. Yeah, so that's epic. That's the epic tiers. Let's get into the legendaries. One of the legendaries, the three got here. Uh, should any of those epics move down? Water Weird was okay, I felt. I'm trying to remember now. Water Weird's um, AC. I think it was 17. Oh, its AC was only 13. Huh. Actually, I could move the water weird down to an epic, couldn't I? Yeah, resist fire, bludgeoning, piercing, slash for non-magical attacks, but uh, things do. Um, okay, I mean, it tries to drown a creature, but really all it does is it grapples it, and it's limited to water. Yeah, you know what? Water weird, you're going to move down from, from epic down to rare, I think. And then... I think that's fair because i mean 58 hit points yeah but really i should one budgeting attack for 13 damage grappled and then i'll try to drown if restrained but um dandy drowning rules right if you look at drowning rules creature can hold its breath for a number of minutes equal to one minutes 
equal to one plus its comm modifier minimum of 30 seconds. When a creature runs out of breath, it can survive for a number of rounds equal to its comm modifier. So at the start of each of its turn, it drops to zero hit points and is dying. Every night that happens. So one plus its comm mod, right? So for example, if we go to the Basilisk, which is the first creature in Legendary we'll talk about, its comm modifier is two. So creature can hold its breath for a number of minutes equal to one plus its comm mod. So one plus two is three. So three minutes. And a round of combat is six seconds. Our full cycle is six seconds. So in that six seconds times ten. Ten full rounds, that's a full minute of fighting. And then after that times that by three. So really has to say there for like thirty minute thirty turns restrained to drown. Which is really sad to think, but that's still a lot. So, once that water root's going down for sure. Anyway, Basilisk, Petrifying Gaze. If a creature starts its turn within 30 feet of the Basilisk and the two of them can see each other, the Basilisk can force the creature to make a DC 12 con saving throw if the Basilisk isn't incapacitated. On a failed save, the creature magically begins to turn to stone as restraint. It must repeat the saving throw at the end of each of it at the end of its next turn. On a success, the effect ends. On a failure, the creature is petrified until freed by the Greater Restoration spell or other magic. A creature that isn't surprised can avert its eyes to avoid the saving throw at the start of its next turn, but if it does so, it can't see the Basilisk until the start of its next turn when it can avert its eyes again. If it looks at the Basilisk in the meantime, it must immediately make the save. If the Basilisk sees a reflection within 30 feet of it and brim light, it mistakes itself for arrival and targets itself with a gaze. Otherwise, it hits for 5 and hits for 10 piercing damage plus 7 poison. So 17 damage at baseline already. Already better than the dragons for damaging. And just by looking at him and him looking at you. Con save. You do it again. If oh, so what is it? On a failed save, the creature magic begins to turn to stone. It must repeat the saving throw at the end of its next turn. On a success, the effect ends. On a failure, the creature is petrified until freed by the greater restoration spell or other magic. So literally... It's not that the Basilisk has to have two turns. The Basilisk just does it if it starts its turn. And then at the end of your next, if you fail that DC 12 con save check twice, you are turned to stone. Which doesn't surprise, convert its eyes. Yeah, no. It doesn't say you're even immune. No other facts are like, oh, if you beat it, you're immune for like 24 hours or you're just immune to it in general. Uh, you look at him. You make a check, you fail that, you start to turn to stone. You fail again, you are stone. <laughs> so that's why obviously it's a legendary, because in two turns it's just in one cycle, right? It's like other things. In one cycle. Not like the the hag who makes one check, but he says, hey, make a con check for me. Oh, you failed it. Alright, you're starting to turn to stone. Do it again at the end of your turn. Oh, you failed it. Alright. Here's something. Um on a failed save, the creature magically begins to turn to stone. It must repeat the saving throw at the end of each of its on the end of its next turn. On a success, the effect ends. On a failure, the creature is petrified until freed by that a creature. Okay, so on success, the effect ends, but it starts again for the basilisk. It says if a creature starts its turn within thirty feet of the basilisk and the two can see each other. Oh, My apologies, it's on the creatures that's looking at its turn start. 
If a creature starts its turn within 30 feet of the Basilisk, and the two of them can see each other, the Basilisk can force the creature to make a DC 12 con saving throw. On a fail, the creature magically begins to turn to stone and is restrained. It must be the same throw at the end of its next turn. Okay. So. Actually, I. Okay. Maybe this thing should be an epic now that I think about it. So. The enemy. If any creature. If any enemy looks at the basilisk and it's looking at them. The start of their turn. Because they want to run up and hit the basilisk. So they're going to be looking at him. And if he happens to be looking at you. You make the check. If you fail the check. You begin to start to turn to stone. You must repeat the same throw at the end of its next turn. So it gets basically two actions of doing things. And then if it fails those checks, then it fully turns to stone and that's it. Okay. That makes sense to me then. Okay. Got it. So it's actually two cycles. I thought it was like one turn or one cycle, but it is two, right? Because starts this turn, looks at the basilisk, fails to save, starts to turn to stone. As it's turning to stone, it can then attack that turn, and it can attack the next turn, and then if it fails that save, then it's stone, which is an insta-kill, right? So, but I think since you have to make two checks, should it go down to epic level? No, this is like an insta-kill, though. I mean, obviously, if it says it's reflection, it's different, but... I don't know how that you hit the basilisk if you can't see. So you probably disadvantage if you're not looking at him too. So he poses disadvantage. All right. I'll leave him as legendary for now. Basilisk, you may move down. Uh, Knight. The next one to talk about here. Knight. Uh, best AC of the whole tier here. Uh, AC of 18. Very strong. Hit points of 52. Also very strong. Saving throws. Plus 4 to con and plus 2 to wisdom. As a bonus on saving throws. Otherwise, again, no bonuses. Brave. Knight has advantage on saving throws against being frightened, which is pretty cool. Knight makes two melee attacks. Greatsword. It's for 10. Or heavy crossbow. It's for 5. So you probably do two greatsword, which is 20 damage. And he's got the leadership. So you know the hobgoblin ability? He has one too called leadership. For one minute, the knight can utter a special command or warning whenever a non-hostile creature that it can see within 30 feet of it makes an attack roll or saving throw. The creature has a d4 to its roll, provided it can hear and understand the knight. A creature can benefit from only one leadership die at a time. So, the knight has leadership where the hobgoblin captain had like its own utterance to give a d4 to an attack roll or saving throw. But, ultimately the knight has an AC of 18, which I said makes it way better than the, the hobgoblin captain for that. So, And an AoE aura of giving people around you a plus 4, or a d4, I'm sorry, a d4 worth of bonus of something to an attack roll or a saving throw. Whenever a non-hostile creature can see within 30 feet, it makes an attack roll or saving throw. Yeah, anytime. Attack roll or saving throw. The creature can add d4. Yeah, so you don't even need to keep skipping your turn. You can just do that as an action, as leadership for one time, and everybody... And, and, it has parry. Which the knight adds two to its AC against one melee attack that would hit it. To do so, the knight must see the attacker be wielding a melee weapon. So yeah, AC is 20. Knight adds a two to its AC against one melee attack that would hit it. Obviously, legendary status now, right? Um, having an AC of 20 for one melee attack, of course, but it's just too good not to pass up. Way too good not to pass up to be a legendary. And spectator. 
I'll just show you guys a spectator. Spectator, uh, little offensive I can use. I think I can. Because it doesn't say in its name. Beholder. Even though it's like a type of beholder. Show you guys it here. Here's a picture of it. Looking pretty nasty, if I say so. All right. What does it do? A bunch of things. It's it's, it's legendary. I'm saying that right now, but uh, AC 14, hit points of 39. So a little cluster, it floats for 30, 30 feet. Uh, dark vision, plus six on perception, can't be prone. Uh, language, deep speech, under common telepathy. All right, bite for 1d6 minus one piercing or two. And only it's a plus one hit, but it has eye rays. And that's what makes it really strong. So the spectator shoots up to two of the following magical eye rays at one or two creatures. It can see within 90 feet of it. It can use each ray only once on a turn. So you can't like do two rays, right? But you can use a confusion ray. Target must take a DC 13 wisdom save or a cantic reactions until the end of its next turn. On its turn, the target can't move and it uses its action to make a melee or range attack against a randomly determined creature within range. If the target can't attack, it does nothing on its turn. So you, if somebody's pack tactics, they're probably attacking with their buddy next to them. You could make them instead attack their buddy by chance through randomness. Okay, and that's just one of its eye rays. Second eye ray is a paralyzing ray. Target makes a DC 13 con saving throw. Be paralyzed for one minute. The target can beat the saving throw at the end of, end of each of its turns, ending the effect on itself on success. But it basically gets to skip its turn if it spends its whole turn paralyzed. It can frighten things. The target makes a DC, 11, DC 13 wisdom saving throw or be frightened for one minute. The target can repeat the saving throw at the end of each of its turns with disadvantage if the spectator is visible to the target, ending the effect on a wisdom. So basically it can find something for a minute, and repeat their saving throw at the end with disadvantage if the spectator is visible. So if you're looking at the guy and you're scared and you're trying to break free of it, you have disadvantage. And Paralyzed, we obviously talked about, gives you advantage. Other people that are within five feet of you get, cr you get crit hits on you, they get advantage. Uh, frightened. Look at frightened real quick. Uh, me. Look at frightened quick. Frightened says. Frightened creature has disadvantage on ability checks and attack rolls while the source of its fear is within line of sight. The creature can't willingly move closer towards the source of fear. But they can look away from it and then try to make a break of the frightened thing. They could do that. But there's one more. Wounding Ray. Target must make a DC 13 con saving throw. Otherwise, they take 3d10 or 16 necrotic damage on a failed save or half as much damage on a successful one. And for some reason, create food and water. Um, this is an eye ray. It's just another ability called create food and water. The spectator magically creates enough food and water to sustain itself for 24 hours. And oh, a reaction. Spell reaction. If the spectator makes a successful saving throw against a spell or a spell attack misses, the spectator can choose another creature, including the spectator, it can see within 30 feet of it. The spell targets the chosen creature instead of the spectator. If the spell forced a saving throw, the chosen creature makes its own save. If the spell was an attack, the attack roll is rerolled against the chosen creature, but it literally has a reaction called spell reflection which redirects a spell attack to somebody else. Oh my god. That is just so much. That's just so much. AC 13, or AC 14, hit points of 39. Not the most best, but you gotta admit, this thing is just... See? 
All right, so that was that was uh, CR three. Obviously, been moving around a lot of things, shifting some stuff. As even as we talked about it, because ultimately this stuff will have a lot of shifting. And if you're like Ryan, that's so OP. Move that up. Oh, that's not as OP. Move that down. I'm here for. I'm here for thoughts. I'm here for things. Uh, so then the question comes now, right? I have finished CR zero through three. Do I start assembling card packs? For the next episode and things that's another question so uh we're gonna have three questions ultimately for you guys as listeners to respond to and you can choose to respond to any of them you want um i'll get back to the book here now that we're done talking about creatures and i want to talk about the last thing that i want your opinion on that i haven't shown you yet that i've done on the bottom so after all the major book is done right before the frequently asked questions i was thinking of making a section because when players download this on dm's guild you'll be able to get it uh, as a pdf right so you'll be able to download and download and print whatever sections of it you want um or just read and use it i want you guys' thoughts on this here and and, and i know i've said before i want your thoughts on things this is something i, I really out of anything i've said before i'd like serious opinions on if if possible and that's after all the creatures after all there are in the back of the book i made a table and I want your guys' thoughts on the table. Oh, more art quickly to show off. Um, this is Seymour. I don't know if I showed Seymour the Shell Collector. He's going to be the evolution of Crab. I don't remember if I did or not. So there's Seymour. And I showed you Thormonger. There's Angry Mob. Uh, Batsy of Darkness. I got Biomorph Baboon on its way. I saw the rough sketch this morning. It looks sick. A new a new version without without uh, Wizards of the Coast drawing, like I said. Uh, I have Astral Feline, the, the angelic cat, coming as well. So... Cool. Okay, called the Oromon Log. Please, I'd like people's thoughts on this. How does this look? If you're listening, I will totally describe it. It's basically a page in the book, or give me a bunch of pages, that has every creature name and a line for you guys as players to write the highest level card you own of that and the number of copies. That way, when you're building your deck, or DMs are buying cards for players and etc. And you're opening card packs and things. While you can use real life cards. And there will be a website at some point where you'll be able to dot, um, buy cards off online. And have it your own play groups. And be actual playing cards and things. Which should be sick. Um, I wanted those thoughts. On how this looks. If this should be here in the book. If it shouldn't be. And it's a log for cards in your binder. So I have my badger and i my badger rang right um it starts um with cr0 and i went through and i listened every creature in the game um just for CR, cr0 to start before i get ahead of myself i want your thoughts and i'll just continue one off of that and just have pages of this table for you guys at home to write down the highest level card that you own of that and how many copies right because if we go up to the fusion section here in the book you need multiple copies of a card to fuse and level it up Right, we talked about how uh, for fusions here. Just review that real quick for people that are just hopping and listening. Where is it? There it is. I keep passing here. Ormond fusions. So I've got my one badger card. I've unlocked how many cards do I need to level up? Well, I have one. So that means I need one more card plus that. Fuse them together. And now I have a level two badger. How many badgers do I need in addition to that? Is I need now two copies of that badger. So I got my one badger. And I got my two other cards here. Diffuse with it. Bam. Now I have a level three badger. But you're going to be doing this with so many cards that you're going to collect in this game. So why not have a section 
And you can print these pages off, put them behind your character sheet, right? When you come to each play session, or even if you're just online, download this as a PDF and you can just get these pages and you can write on and print them off at home and just write them as you collect the cards to show, okay, I have six copies of the Badger card and that's at level one, right? Because I've been busting over a bunch of card packs. I have six copies of the card. So that means I have one and five cards I can fuse with it. So what does that mean? Well, if I have my one card and I have, it's level one and I have six copies of it, um, basically lets you see, okay, if I was to go to a fusion area, got my one copy, I need one more copy to fuse with it. Okay, now I have a level two. I need two more copies of that. Bam, now I have a level three. I need to take my level three and I take my three other copies of the badger here and fuse them with my one level three. And bam, now I have a level four badger, which can now evolve into a badgerang, right? Basically, it's evolution. That's all I'm saying, like for cards to evolve. So I could then go to my log book my log sheet in the back of my character sheet and just change the numbers, right? I can change my badger to show I have zero highest level cards in that. I have zero copies of that, but I can put, I have a level four badgerang and zero copies of that guy because he's obviously an evolution. Um, but yeah, actually what I might do to simplify this, if players were to look at this, and this is where, again, Give me your thoughts if you think this log in the back is a good idea for players or just keep track of what cards that they have, especially if they if they don't plan to buy the cards, because ultimately there could be just tens of thousands of index cards for this to be bought. And you could just play this with index cards. You just have to write down the name of the creature on one on like the blank side or on the line side, and then always just keep them the same orientation. So when you draw a card, you'll you'll know the name of it and you can just look in the book for its stats or if you memorized it. Um what I might do is, since you can't collect copies of evolved creatures, I might just get rid of the number of copies. Um, because you can only fuse things that are less. So that way you can know, okay, what is, what is an evolution of a creature when you look at the chart quick, right? Because otherwise it says, it's not, it's not, it's alphabetized by the first level name. But ultimately, I put its evolution below it. But it's all in the same table. So I might just go to its second form and get rid of the number of copies line. Because you can only fuse it with its baseline already. Like, you'll never be able to get an evolution of a creature. It just doesn't happen. You always get its base form. So it wouldn't make sense that you would have a bunch of copies of an evolution. Because you can only also only have one copy of a card in your deck unless it says otherwise, right? So that's where then if you collect a bunch of stuff and you fuse your guy up to a high level, you can then sell the copies to get more packs and things like that. So let me know what you think of the log. And so recap questions uh, to be asked. What is your thought on the log section of the book? Should I do it? Should there be a spot for players to write and keep track of? Okay, what is the highest level card I have of this name and the number of copies I have of its base form? So that way you can keep track because as you play the game, you want to fight people and go through stories and stuff. You you might forget. Oh, what level was my badger again? How many copies of it do I need to fuse? So I was thinking, just making this log section for players to write on, and then you can print the sheet and use it in your play group to keep track of what you own and things. And you can see again what's out there, just name wise for creatures. Let me know what you think of that. Um, yeah. So question says, what do you think of the log book or the log section? Should the log section be an area? Next thing is for the almanac section, the organization of the creatures in the book. Should I do it where? Here is its CR. Here's like the list of all the creatures at zero. Here's the art 
and then here's one eight, here's its art, or do I do okay, here's a list of zero, one eight, half, one, two, three, etc. Here's a list of all the creatures, and then here's all the art afterwards. I think I want to break it into its specific sections. So you can just say in the comments, right, your opinions if you think should it be specific sections or should it be a full list for the almanac? Meaning should I list every creature name first and then show all the art of all the creatures afterwards? Or do the list show the art? Do the list show the art? Things like that. So break it up into sections or do them fully. Like do all the pictures or do all the words and then do all the pictures. And then the last thing that we talked about earlier um, is now that I finished the CRs 0 through 3, should I get now the packs together? and start doing pack layouts of what you can see in anticipated packs. Because that is a section of the book, right? Oromon card packs is a section I have not touched since I made the title. And I could start to show you guys tables of what it looks like for each card pack to hopefully have its own tables to roll on so that you guys as players can practice rolling to see what cards you can draw from packs. And then really, I think that's it for people to get the game rolling is just card packs and me to make evolutions in art and cards and um, stats. For everything as its evolutions so yeah um let me know your thoughts down below on those things and with that being said um again happy father's day um be sure to talk or message the father figure in your life let them know how appreciative of them you are and hopefully at least just wish them happy father's day even if you haven't talked to them in a while because it can mean a lot to somebody really so um with that being said if it's daytime for you have a good day if it's nighttime for you have a good night and with that, I'll catch you guys all for the next one. Alrighty, see ya.